You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We're glad to have you with us today. Welcome to Kingsway. If you're visiting with us or following back from Easter, we're so glad you're here. And uh, as Megan said, we had fantastic attendance both here and online last week. I still don't know what to do with all the online attendance, but we're glad you're tuning in. And hopefully as this virus comes to death, finally, we'll see you back here in person. So let's jump into this new series called Goliath Must Fall. Have you ever had a moment in your life that left you afraid of what might happen next? Have you ever had a moment in your life that left you afraid of what might happen next? There's something called Murphy's Law. I don't know if you've heard of Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law is the idea that if something can go wrong, what? It will. will. And if you are a Murphy's Law kind of person, then you are always thinking and believing in what might possibly go wrong. And my guess is, if we had time to sit in my office and ask a series of annoying questions, we could probably locate one or two or three critical moments in your life where something did go wrong and it left you with fear. This idea that it's not going to work, you aren't going to make it, things are going to go wrong because, and you can remember the specific moment in time where that actually happened before. There is a phrase, you may have heard it before, about what our body does when fear comes into the mind and stress enters the body, and it's called fight and flight. Yes, you've heard of this before. If you corner an animal and the animal gets afraid, it's either going to attack you or it's going to try to run away from you. Now, the reality is that the human body, there's actually four responses. I like to name them fight, flight, fright, and fold. Those are just the four F words, if you, if you will. Let's not, let's, not, let's not go quote that from today about what happens when we become afraid. Fight, we're gonna figure out how to get out of this, right? Flight, we're gonna run away. Fright, we're gonna get anxious about this and worry about this and fold. I'm just gonna quit like an apostle. I'll just play dead and hope it all goes away. But the reality is, life is hard. It is filled with hard moments. And sometimes life is gonna punch you in the gut and sometimes it's gonna bring you to your knees and it's gonna leave you feeling like whatever's in front of you is insurmountable. And that's the point of the series. Today, I'm gonna spend a lot of time in one text. You're welcome to go there. If you know how to use your Bible, if not, everything's gonna be on this screen for you to follow along today. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we're gonna be looking at a famous story of David and Goliath. While you're working on your way there, let me tell you about um, a Goliath moment in my own life. It was just a handful or so of years ago, I was the pastor here at Kingsway, and if it could go wrong in my life, it was at the moment. In my work life, in my professional life, and in my private life, and in my family life, it was hard everywhere I turned. I think I've said this publicly before, I'm not proud of this, but I want you to get an idea of where I was in that season when I would lay my head down at night, I would see a gun going off next to my head. Some of you are like, wow, that's the kind of place that I was in. I had no desire to do that. I had no intentions or plans to follow through on that. This wasn't something I was pursuing. That just tells you in my heart, in my head, where I was. And it seemed like no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't find a win. You ever been there? And so I got this grandiose idea. The, the elders thankfully came to me and said, Pastor, we think it's time for you to take a break, go on a sabbatical, get some rest, recover, and come back and serve us. And I'm so thankful for a leadership who cares about me enough to do that. 
And I had this grandiose plan. I had a free ticket on an airline from a trip that canceled the year before. And it was like a $1,600 credit. And I found out with like 30 days to go that if I didn't use it, I was gonna lose it. So I called the airline. I'm trying everything I can to negotiate. They won't budge. You got 30 days. Basically, I was like, oh, I'm flying around the world and coming back. I'm not losing $1,600 ticket credit. No way. So I start researching and I've narrowed it down to, oh, one of my friends is a missionary in Peru. So either I'm gonna go to Peru because I've always wanted to go to Peru. I wrote a report about Peru when I was like in the fourth grade or fifth grade, like I wanna go to Peru or I wanna go to Australia. I'm just gonna fly there. I'll poke around, maybe stay in a hotel and then I'll just fly back and it'll be on their dime and I'm just gonna make them waste their money. I was so mad. I was like, I'm gonna make them waste a seat on their flight. They're gonna have to do this. I'm flying first class too. So... As it would work out, the church approved me going to Peru and I stayed with my missionary friends and I'm talking to my friend and my friend's like, oh man, it'll be great. You come down here, don't, don't worry about it. You'll get some rest. We'll introduce you to the work that we're doing on here, but trust me, there's some cool stuff. He's like, by the way, have you ever heard of Rainbow Mountain? I was like, nah, I don't even know what a Rainbow Mountain is. He goes, you need to go Google Rainbow Mountain. So I Googled Rainbow Mountain and here's what I saw. Here's what it looks like. That is a real place on God's creation unbelievable. Yeah, look at that. There's actually a Rainbow Mountain, I guess, somewhere over in Asia or whatever. And I was like, you're right. I need to go find Rainbow Mountain. I need to do that. So I'm talking to my friend. I've got these loose plans. It's like, don't worry about it. When you get here, I'll take care of you. Well, I get there and he's a little busy, as you can imagine. And my friend who's on staff, Ben Bullard, he goes with me because uh, we're going to travel together. You know, that Jesus sends the disciples out in twos. I'm going to have accountability and encouragement. And I could just use a brother in this hard season. So we go down together. Now, here's the thing. We go to my 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 friend's place where he's staying at New Hope, Peru, who we go and support now. And we're staying there and we're playing with the kids and whatever, whatever. And now we're going to go up and we're going to go to Rainbow Mountain and we're going to go to Machu Picchu and we're going to just go check out some of these places in the mountains. And my friend's like, yeah, 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 yeah. No big deal. He's explaining to me what it looks like. Everything's going to be fine. When you get there, do this, do this, do this. No big deal. He helps us book some tickets. We hop on a flight. We fly up to Cusco in Peru. We get off the airplane and I look at Ben Bullard, who's on staff, and I go, well, now what? And he goes, well, I figured you knew. <laughs> now, the reason we're on this trip, in case you don't really know me or haven't been here for very long, is because I needed to remember again that God would take care of me no matter the situation. I told my wife, I told the elders, I told Ben, I said, Ben, I need to put myself in the most volatile situation, the most dangerous situation that I can within reason. That's why my wife wanted Ben to go. The most <laughs> dangerous situation that I can, because I need to remember that God will take care of me. I need to remember that no matter what happens next, no matter how it happens, if I have to literally fast for a week, I need to know that God is going to show up and he's going to meet my needs. We walk off the plane. Oh, watch out for this. We walk off the plane and I don't even know what this is or that didn't even realize it was on there. I probably ripped that off the wall. Look at that. Uh, we walked off the plane and don't know where we're going. And so uh, I don't speak the language. I had just hoped somebody might speak English there. They don't. I know about... I know about 20 Spanish words, enough to find out where the food is, which is helpful, where the bathroom is, and water if you need it, but you don't want to drink the water, so I don't know if that's really going to be helpful or not. Ben doesn't speak any Spanish words, and he pronounces things like taco <laughs> and chalupa, and I'm like, we're in trouble. We are in serious trouble. I love you, Ben. Anyway, we're walking around the airport like this doesn't look at all like I had in my head for my friend, my missionary, just describing it, and I'm on my phone. I'm trying to reach my missionary friend, and he's not answering well, what do we do next? I don't know. So we just decide, like literally say a quick prayer. Okay, God, help us out. And we literally decide, we go up to this lady. She's standing there. She looks really friendly. And so we go up and she speaks some English. And uh, we tell her we have some money. So she's excited to help us. 
And she says, hang on for a minute. And she starts making these calls and organizes stuff. She's like, come with me. She plans the entire trip for us. It is unbelievable. And I still don't know, like I'm handing her money. I'm thinking, I don't have another option. I probably paid three times the amount of money. I found out later from a missionary friend. He said, how in the world did you get that price? I could not have gotten that price if I'd showed up and negotiated myself. God took care of us. But what we ended up doing was after multiple nights of going here and going here and going there, she planned it. We told her everything we wanted to do because in our mind, why not? Why can't you do it all? We literally got about two hours sleep a night for about three days in a row. We were exhausted and we woke up after going to bed at 11 and hardly being able to fall asleep. We woke up at two to catch a bus to ride for hours to show up at the place where we would hike to Rainbow Mountain. Now, you land at about 9,000 feet in the air. If you've ever been to the Rocky Mountains, if you've ever been to the Appalachian Mountains, the Andes Mountains are like taking the two and smashing them together. They're really tall and really rocky, but really green and beautiful. And we showed up at around 9,500 feet, give or take, and we're going to hike to around 15,500 feet. So we're going about a mile up but it's a four and a half mile trek out. I'd started running on a treadmill about two weeks before just in case it wasn't enough. <laughs> so we're about an hour into this trip and I turn around and I take my first picture. Here's what it looks like. It's hard to tell exactly what we're looking at, but I just turn around and I took this picture of this long journey that we've taken through the mountains. I went about another 45 minutes or so into the trip. You could take the next pic now and I just turn around and took a picture so you could see like over this hill in this huge valley that we've come through and we're only about halfway there. When I got to the end, Ben, by the way, was one of the first people to finish because Ben's in fantastic shape. That was not my story. And they have these little horses like you can buy for the day and they'll ride you up. And at the beginning of the trip, I'm taking off fast and I'm like watching them. I'm like, they can't keep up with me. And about an hour in, about that point, these things are all ahead of me. I'm looking at the backside of all those horses and thinking, how much were those again? <laughs> and I wanted to quit and I wanted to quit and I wanted to quit. And there came a point where I thought to myself, I just have to put one more foot in front of the other. There was no oxygen. I couldn't breathe. And they told you, if you don't get to the summit within a certain amount of time, you won't make it. We won't be able to take you because you can only be up there for so long and there's other groups coming. And I'm watching the pack get ahead of me more and ahead of me more. I'm somewhere in the middle back half of the pack and I'm thinking, I gotta make it. I just have to make it. And I don't have this photo, but Ben is up on the top. He's been up there about 45 minutes waiting for me. And I'm trying to make it up the last stretch, which was brutal. And Ben stops, he goes, Matt, you're almost there, don't quit. And he pulls out his camera and I literally raise my hands in the air and you can't tell, but I think I'm going to have a heart attack. <laughs> and Ben snaps his picture and I look like, Ben, I'm gonna kill you. But it was really like, yay, I made it. And I still had to finish the top and to peak at the summit. And life feels a lot like that sometimes. At the end of the trip, the one thing I could say of all the amazing things, someday if we ever sit down over coffee, I'll tell you all eight hours worth of stories. God showed up. And he took care of me and he provided and he gave me these little stories along the way. I really believed, guys, that I was on a spiritual journey. I was fighting a spiritual battle. There came this one moment, there were these dogs there and I'm walking along and I'm literally in this prayer moment with God. I'm talking about some of the stuff that I'm going through and I'm just talking with God and these dogs have ignored literally every single person that's walked by, but they just start going after me. And it freaked me out for a second there. I was like, and Ben was walking with me at that point. We're just praying over people we know and over situations. And we're like, okay, that's freaky. 
I don't know how to explain it. You may think, oh, no big deal. My neighbor dogs do that all the time. I get it. Did you know when you are actually literally afraid, you excrete a chemical? A chemical that animals can pick up on that you can't tell? You actually excrete that. Maybe I, there was something in me, maybe that was coming out that day. I don't know. But I needed that trip to remind me again of the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, that God provides, that God shows up, that God will not fail. And that more than anything else is what we're gonna see in today's story. Because when the Goliaths of your life show up and they will, and throughout this series, we're gonna talk about various Goliaths of comfort and rejection and addiction and fear. And when they show up, they scream loud and they seem insurmountable, but they're not. So let's jump into our story in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And as we jump into this story, I'm gonna have to read a lot and summarize a lot. You need to know the context. There was a king named Saul. Now Saul, we are told in the scriptures, was a head taller than everybody else. The average height of an Israelite in that day would have been around five foot, five, foot five maybe five foot four. And God had rejected Saul because Saul continued to turn his heart away from the Lord. He would not respond anymore to what God was doing in his life. God tried and tried and tried. And so God said, fine. And he raised up a new king. His name was David. But when God anointed David, not much sooner than this text we're going to look at, when he did that, David was just a teenage boy. We don't know exactly how old, but he wasn't ready to be king. So God has to take David through a series of events to train him to be ready to lead a nation. And could it be that some of the hardest moments of your life are God's training ground for what he wants to do in you next? The thing is, you must pass the test. The fact that Saul is bigger than all the Israelites gets into the story we're about to get to. Because what we find ourselves is in a valley, and on each side of this valley are two armies. The armies of the Israelites and the armies of the enemy, the Philistines. And every day, one of the heroes of the Philistines comes down into the valley and starts to challenge the Israelite army and yell offensive things towards them and towards their God, the God of heaven and earth, and mock and cajole and attempt to bring somebody down. And it goes a little bit, we'll look at this in a moment, but it goes a little bit like, you send us your best, we'll bring our best, which Goliath is saying is me, winner takes all. We could save everybody else's lives. We'll just come down here, you fight me. And not one Israelite for 40 days would dare go down into the valley and fight the battle. Well, as God would have it, as he's organizing the systems, he moves David's dad to send David to check on his brothers who are there. 40 days and 40 nights, I've been watching this guy, but he doesn't know anything. So he says, take him some food and come back and report how it's going. And when little David arrives, here's the scene that he sees. First Samuel chapter 17. Verse four, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Now let me camp here, and I'm not gonna spend a lot of time, and I'm about to blow some of your minds who've heard this story your entire life. There are multiple, as I talked about a couple of weeks ago, multiple texts that we draw from both the Hebrew and the New, sorry, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The text we tend to use the most for the Old Testament is something called the Masoretic text. It's the Hebrew Old Testament the Hebrew Old Testament records six cubits in a span. But there is another text, the Septuagint. It's the Greek Old Testament and also the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is something we found, I think it was in the 1940s. I'm trying to remember now when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And both of them record something over four cubits. There is a significant difference. And we don't know which one is accurate. If it's six cubits in a span, that makes Goliath somewhere around nine and a half feet tall. 
If it's four cubits in a span, it makes him somewhere around six and a half feet tall. I personally think I'm totally fine with a nine foot tall man, though it would be far taller than anybody we've ever known. The tallest man we know of in history is somewhere a little over eight feet tall, which is still much taller than uh, Shaquille O'Neal himself. I don't know what to tell you other than that, except for the point of the text, whether he is nine feet tall or six and a half feet tall, which may not seem that big to you, the average Israelite is five foot four. He's a Goliath, so to speak, of a man compared to who he's fighting anyway. And we get this in more of the description about him. Look at next. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat scale of armor, bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore brown greaves and, brown, and a bronze javelin. I cannot pronounce anything this morning. Bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. This massive man, no matter how massive he really was, was so big that he has a shield bearer in front of him to help carry all of his gear. He is big, he is strong, he is overwhelming, he's intimidating, and he's got a lot of goods. He's well-trained. He looks unbeatable. I don't know what you're facing as you come in here today, but is it possible that there's a Goliath in your life that looks unbeatable? And so rather than confront the Goliath and do what needs to be done, You've put it off, you've avoided it, you've ignored it in believing it can't be beat. If that's true, you wouldn't be alone. Look at what happens next. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, have him come down to me. The first thing that Goliath gets wrong is the Israelites are not servants of Saul. They are servants of the great high king of heaven. And this little nuance changes everything. Because see, in your battle against your Goliaths, if you do not realize who you are fighting with, then you'll see yourself as fighting with or for something that you're not. And it's hard to stay motivated to stay in the battle. It's hard to stay motivated to keep pressing forward. It's hard to confront the evils and the sins of this world, the destructive things happening in your life. If you think you're fighting for a person or for man or for a boss or for a parent or for a spouse and not for God himself. And what you will often find is Goliath absolutely represents a spiritual battle that we are going through, and that spiritual enemy wants to yell lies at you about who you are, who you're fighting for, and who is fighting with you. Notice the rest, the way he continues to taunt. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man. Let us fight each other. And on hearing this, sorry, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. 
Again, Saul is the king appointed by God. Saul, we are told, is a head taller than every other Israelite. If anybody is fit to go fight Goliath, if anybody is called to go fight Goliath, it's that guy. But Saul and the entire army are dismayed and terrified. They now believe the battle is unwinnable. They are now paralyzed by fight and flight responses, but there is no fight left in them. They're arguing and bickering with each other. Every day, Saul increases what he's willing to pay, somebody willing to go because he's too afraid himself to fight it. In fact, there's plenty of talk among the camp. Every day, hey, 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 anybody who goes down there is willing to fight this guy, I won't make you pay taxes for a day, for a week, for a month, for a year. We're not exactly told the progression. I'll give him my daughter. I'll give him a sum of money. I mean, he just keeps increasing it and increasing it. And every day, one of the Israelites goes, man, that sounds really sweet. I mean, what would it be like to never have to deal with Uncle Sam again for the rest of your life? No offense to any IRS agents in the room. But even Saul wouldn't go. Sometimes Goliaths in our lives seem insurmountable because whoever it was that was supposed to be leading us is shrinking back in fear. And some of you have been in environments where you've shrunk back because that's what you've been taught to do your entire life. So then rather stepping into the battle, rather than stepping into the fight, fear has paralyzed you. And when there's fear in the mind, there's stress in the body. And then it plays out in a whole lot of ways. See, fear, I am convinced, is the root of most bad decisions. Think back to a moment in your life where you did something that you knew you weren't supposed to do and now it's perhaps created a pattern in your life. Go back and just think about it for a minute. I will bet that there's some fear that is the root of that. A fear that you won't have enough so you made that greedy decision or unethical decision. A fear that God won't meet your needs so you went ahead and met your own needs on your own. A fear that if you didn't yell or scream or take everything over and control everything that it wouldn't work out the way you need. A fear that you wouldn't have enough to know how to handle a situation so you keep hiding and running away. And consequently, there are patterns in our lives that come as a byproduct of those fears. We're getting this concept and a lot of this material from a book that you can actually buy in our foyer called Goliath Must Fall. You don't have to buy the book and read it But if you do, you're going to get a whole lot more out of this. And I highly recommend it. It's a great little book by Louis Giglio. In the book, Louis says this, whatever giant we face might be big, but it is not bigger than Jesus. And that is a big but. We have to remember that while Goliath is huge, there is one who is on our side who is far bigger Now, when I was a kid, and this is the point that Louis makes in the book, when I was a kid, some guy at a camp or a retreat or maybe even in church on Sunday morning would get up on a stage and he'd preach about this text and he'd throw down and he'd say, come on, you can be like David too. Go grab your stones and put them in your sling and swing it around. You can beat your giants. But that's not the way that the text has played out. Louis suggests, and I think he's spot on. It's not us going to fight Goliath. It's Jesus who's going to fight Goliath. And Jesus has already defeated the enemy. Jesus has already taken down fear. 
Jesus has already taken down sin. Jesus has already taken down death. Jesus has already taken down the devil. That's exactly what we celebrated last week on Resurrection Sunday. The fact that our king has already won the battle. For us, it's a matter of walking in the victories that he has already given us on the cross and in his resurrection. But it all starts with a basic belief that whatever it is we're facing isn't bigger than him. 1 Samuel 17, verse 23. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. He's on the scene now. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. That sounds pretty fantastic. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now I want you to think about this again. Saul doesn't know everything that's happened with David and the anointing with Samuel. He doesn't know that this teenage boy will one day replace him. He doesn't know any of that yet. That will one day come. But at this point, he sees a teenage boy, let's say 16, 17 years old, put in your mind the most athletic 16-year-old that you've seen in your lifetime. I know you may not agree with me, and I know that he is not well-liked necessarily in the Indianapolis area, but I grew up in Akron, Ohio. I am very well acquainted with a guy named LeBron James. I don't know if you've ever seen him. I don't know if I would call him a Goliath of a man, but he is really big. He is really strong, he's really fast, and he loves to beat the Pacers. I'm just saying, so for some of you who don't like this illustration, and when he was just a teenager, uh, I think it was at St. Vincent St. Mary's in Akron, Ohio, I remember watching videos of him on the internet and going, this is a man among boys. That's why guys like him, guys like um, Garnett and guys like Kobe, they get to the pros at even 19 years old and you find them doing so unbelievably well. Their talent level, their skill level, their ability is so far beyond others their age. It's clear that they are unique. David shows up probably about five foot two and he's like, hey Saul, no worries, I got this. Now, he's not a LeBron James looking dude. He's a Matt Nickerson looking dude. <laughs> Except taller. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and Saul's like, okay. And we'll talk more about that actually next week. But Saul tries to put his armor on him and it just doesn't fit. He's like, no, 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 let me do this my way. And here's the thing. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. It came up in my quiet time this week. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. See, David was a man who showed up with profound courage in his heart that he could do this, not because he was great, but because God was great. Courage is not this, uh, you know, head up, arrogant bravado. Courage is this gut up faith, trust that God is with me and therefore it's gonna be okay. And there is a huge difference between arrogance and, brav and, and bravado and just bravery. There's a huge difference between pride says, oh yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and therefore God is gonna have to do my bidding and my will whenever I say. There's a huge difference between that and I trust that God is for me, God is with me, God is in me and so therefore I'm just gonna take the next 
right step. And so that whatever my best is will be enough because God will work it out. And that even if somehow in my flesh I take a wrong step, God is going to work it out. And there is where courage hits the testing point. And the only way you pass a test is to have enough courage to face it head on. Look at verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. You may go, why is the relevance to him being uncircumcised? Well, quick Bible history 101, the people of God were marked in their flesh with circumcision. And that's how you knew they were the people of God. So he's just drawing out in the text for you. This guy is not with God. God is not with him. God is not for him. God is with me. God is for me. How do I know? Well, I remember a moment in my past when I faced a different kind of Goliath. This one was hairier. It was louder. It had sharper teeth, but it was no less intimidating. And Saul, you may look at me and think I'm small and I'm insignificant and I'm nothing, but trust me, I've won this battle before. I see, it's huge. In David's literal life, God was giving him confidence about what he's facing today from what he'd overcome in the past. And maybe you need to look at what you've overcome in the past to know that you can win what you're facing today. But I don't want to confuse this story because in this story, I believe David represents Jesus. And David defeats the enemy. And our trust is not in just our ability. That's through David's lens, looking at his past. Our trust is in the one who defeated the enemy on Resurrection Sunday. He goes on. He says, the Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. Rescued me from the hand of this Philistine. Do you get it? David's not saying, oh yeah, I'm awesome. I beat a lion, I beat a bear, I beat a tiger, oh my. No, he's saying, God did this. In that moment when I was out with the sheep and I was my responsibility to take care of them and this lion came up and grabbed one of them, there was nobody else around to take care of the sheep. Remember, David points us to Jesus. Every Old Testament hero points us to Jesus. By the way, your life will eventually point others to Jesus because Jesus is the great shepherd. He says, who lays down his own life for his sheep. David had to go rescue the sheep from the mouth of the lion, from the mouth of the bear, because nobody else was showing up to help, and he did. And when he did, he knew his power 